and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Luke Cousineau, Amy Mack, and Kathleen Ma from the Canadian Institute for Far-Right Studies. Thursday marks one year since the official end of the Freedom Convoy, a series of protests against COVID protection measures, vaccine mandates, and lockdowns that paralyzed downtown Ottawa and border crossings in Windsor and Coots for weeks. It was a huge sigh of relief that the entire ordeal was over, but aside from a few follow-up reports, it felt like the convoy was the end of something, and not the beginning. Yes, the convoy itself flamed out, and sympathetic convoys in other places seemed to get no traction. But the complex web of thoughts and ideas behind the convoy are still out there. So, the future of the convoy even if there is no convoy, is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. The images from the Freedom Convoy, especially in the Ottawa capital region around Parliament Hill, are pretty indelible. You might think about the appearance of Nazi regalia or Confederate flags, which were largely denounced post hoc by many even pro-convoy activists, or you might think of the defacement of landmarks like the Terry Fox statue or the National War Memorial. You might also think about the party atmosphere with people in hot tubs and music on a made-to-order stage, which painted a picture of general lawlessness in the name of political activism, even with pretty blatant legal violations like the unsafe movement of jerry cans filled with diesel and trucks and other vehicles running all hours of the day. The Ottawa People's Commission, who are producing their own conclusion about the convoy's impact on the people of Ottawa, called it violent. How did it even get that far to begin with? For the average Canadian, they had no idea about what the Freedom Convoy was or how it came about. And you will hear from the academics studying these areas that they are on the cutting edge of an entirely new discipline. How online radicalization turns into full-blown civic disturbance and disobedience IRL. The Canadian Institute for Far-Right Studies is an independent think tank dedicated to the critical study of the far-right in Canada. It's a growing and multifaceted field of study, and this week we're joined by three of its team members. So we have Dr. Luke Cousineau, who is the co-director of research, and he studies gender and power with specific reference to men's rights and critiques of masculinity. We have Dr. Amy Mack, who is the other co-director of research and focuses on how social media radicalizes people into ethno-nationalism and white supremacy. And finally, we have Kathleen Ma, who is a research fellow who's currently in Ottawa doing field research about critical public health and anti-mask groups. This distinguished panel joins us on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast to talk about their immediate academic reaction to the convoy, how they've been tracking the groups and leaders after the convoy was broken up a year ago, and whose responsibility it should be to study the convoy and how misinformation fed into it. We will also discuss the information war, how we can use education without being accused of indoctrination, and how real problems feed into far-right extremism without presenting any real solutions. And finally, we will talk about the danger to young people and their resiliency, what the panel is worried about coming next, and what responsibility politicians have, whether they are pro or anti-convoy and its sentiments. So, I caught up with Luke Cousineau, Amy Mack, and Kathleen Ma late last week via Zoom. Okay, uh, so joining me is an illustrious panel here uh, today, so I'm going to just throw it around the room and introduce everyone. I'm going to start with, I'm, you know what, I'm going to go in order of who hopped on first. So that was Kathleen Ma. Kathleen, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, too. Uh, after Kathleen, we have Amy Mack. Amy, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. And last but certainly not least is uh, Luke Cousineau. Thank you, Luke. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm great. Happy to be here. Excellent. So I, I want to start here. And Luke, since you're on my screen, I'll start with you. Um, just in terms of like sort of initial thoughts, um, this time last year as as the Freedom Convoy was happening, as it was winding down and given your area of study, uh, what were sort of like your immediate and I'm going to put the focus here on academic. What your what were your immediate sort of academic thoughts watching this go down? Um, 
I think my immediate thoughts were really around normalization. So the, the normalization of um, some of the kinds of behavior that were happening there and, and really thinking about what does it say about what has been allowed to happen, what was allowed to happen during the time that the convoy was occupying space. And, and I don't just mean physical space, I mean media space and thought space and head space uh, and the normalization of that um, for Canadians and how, how we were thinking about, oh, well, this sort of became just the everyday um, in really in really troubling ways because there were pieces of that that were about um, overthrowing the democratically elected government. And there were things about that that were about sort of real physical violence. And there were things about that um, in, you know, challenging ideas of what public health means and what supporting others in your community means and all of those sorts of things. And so, and, and then from a sort of, um, you know, men's rights and male supremacy sort of space where I spend a lot of my research time, it said a lot about what is this going to do around how we feel about um, authoritarianism and mm. populism and, um, and the way we feel about government, right? And so, right. so there was a lot of a lot of thoughts going on for me about what is this going to mean? Is it going to shift? And I did some writing at the time about shifting of the Overton window uh, towards what is essentially a fringe, a, a set of fringe beliefs in the country. And it I, and it absolutely did that. We saw it with with. Um, COVID regulations in Ontario, and we saw it with um, sort of other political moves uh, in other parts of the country as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Amy, your, what were your thoughts? So that's a really interesting question for us. Our organization, the Canadian Institute for Far-Right Studies, actually emerged in response to feeling like academically we knew a lot about what was happening and many of us weren't particularly surprised that this happened. But there seemed to be a disconnect between what we knew and what we could actually do mm -hmm. with our knowledge. So I'm located in Alberta, in southern Alberta in particular. And so everyday folks were like, what is going on here and what can we do about it? And we realized that there just wasn't enough communication happening academically and publicly. So I suppose my focus became on public scholarship and public facing sort of approaches. And I personally became deeply concerned with the issue of youth radicalization. Mm. So when I was paying attention to the Coots Sweetgrass border blockade, which, you know, being in Alberta was kind of my area of focus, uh, there were a lot of young people there, you know, a lot of young men. And, and there were lots of children at the Ottawa protests as well. And so I've started to become really concerned with the sort of interventions that we can kind of mobilize in school settings, in community settings, particularly in rural spaces, which typically get kind of ignored in a lot of the academic literature. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to Kathleen. And as we were, were sort of talking about before we started recording, this has kind of become your speciality in terms of academic um, academic exploration so you know can you talk a bit about your thoughts then yeah I think I I feel a lot of what Amy was articulating in terms of like um public scholarship and, and public engagement but I think also I have this like ongoing beef with academia in terms of like uh, uh what the whole purpose of academia is and I really struggled with um because this the convoy happened after my field work um, with the Freedom Fighters, which I did in Alberta. Um, uh, and it was just like terrifying to see people who I had worked so closely with become radicalized in a different way that I hadn't really witnessed in my fieldwork. And so I was searching through academic literature to find a way to help me navigate my feelings. And that was really absent for me. And I think that, and I had access to things that are behind, um, you know, paywalls and on all those things. And so I felt that, you know, if, if I was feeling this way, like, I think something is structurally wrong with the way that academia is approaching the far right, in terms of how we lock everything away and discuss among each other instead of having larger conversations. Um, and so that was kind of my, my response was that, you know, 
it, it, something needs to change within academia as well as what, how we're addressing, you know, the far right in Canada. Amy, I'm going to bring it back to you for a sec, because I, I think you're talking about forming the center and sort of response to a lot of these things happening. And I, hearing the talk about Kathleen talk about stuff behind paywalls, it, you know, it makes me think about something I heard. I, I can't remember who to attribute it to, but they're talking about how, you know, a lot of news now is behind paywalls, like capital N news, like newspapers and like the Toronto star, the New York times and things like that are behind paywalls. And you have this pro- proliferation of, conspiracy sites and people who claim to be journalists but are publishing misinformation disinformation and all that i guess i'm not sure how quite how to phrase the question itself but you know there is a a a systemic problem in how we got here it's not just a bunch of people went on facebook and believed crazy things we've sort of built a system where we were uniquely prey to something like the freedom convoy erupting yeah i think the credible news sources, like you said, are consistently behind paywalls, which people are increasingly unwilling to pay for. We are in a cost of living crisis right now, so I really can't fault people for that. Um, but I also think there is an issue of political parties, particularly amongst the far right and far right agitators, doing a lot to discredit uh, the typically accredited news sources. Um, They do a lot of disinformation and smear campaigns against people that would maybe report uh, in ethical ways and in accountable and transparent ways. Like the CBC is constantly Mm. uh, scrutinized and scapegoated by folks amongst the far right. And it's not that they don't have a kernel of truth. Often conspiracy theories do have a kernel of truth. It's just how they get weaponized. And so I think we are kind of in between a rock and a hard space here where people just simply can't afford to access news and people maybe don't want to access those news sites either. I feel it's worth pointing out too that a lot of rural places in this country, the CBC is the news because that is part of their mandate is to cover places that don't have any coverage. That being said, those rural spaces are just as likely to turn on Fox News. Right. uh, In part because there is a cultural distaste for the mm. CDC and for government mandated sources, right? If you don't trust the government, you're also not going to trust the CBC. Fair enough. I think, I think that's, that's true. Um, Luke, I wanted to ask you specifically about your area of expertise because um, th- th- there is kind of a crossover here between the, the things of that are happening in the so-called manosphere and when you see a lot of the leadership, it's not a universal thing. I mean, Tamara Leach was one of the leaders of the convoy, but there is a significant crossover between a lot of these issues um, that are going on with white men and the violence there and what was happening with the Freedom Convoy, correct? Yeah, I mean, we we certainly see connections in that space around, um, we can we can call it, perceived lost entitlement or perceived lost privilege, right? And so um, men who perhaps previously might have been, you know, their fathers or their father's fathers, depending on their age, of course, um, who were able to maybe maybe graduate high school and get a job that they were able to do for their whole lives um, and support a family and have a spouse who didn't work and have kids and own a home and all of those things. And so um, I, I think many of the men that are involved in the leadership, but also involved at every level of these movements are sort of looking to that model and saying, well, why can't I have that? And looking for somebody to to blame. And that, and I, and I mean, there's lots of great scholarship. Kate Maine uh, is a great author who's talked about sort of entitlement in for men and masculinity, um, where we've said, well, this is one, what we're supposed to do right. as white men, right? We're supposed to be the provider. We're supposed to be the head of the household. We're supposed, we're supposed to be, quote unquote, all of those things. Um, and then the the inability to do that. And then we're look, they are looking for someone to blame. And so it's easy to blame the government. It's easy to blame feminism, right? Because we, we equate the feminist movement with women working with women doing women having power in a variety of ways where the real reasons for that are much larger and much more complicated and are imbued 
in capitalism are imbued in um the way our political systems and power function right so it it becomes then an easy scapegoat it's something really easy to grab onto if you are an an aggrieved man i i should be able to have all these things and it's somebody's fault and that right. somebody is feminism or that somebody is woke liberals or that somebody is insert you know going back to our previous point about like what media can we access insert the target that is fed to me by that mm. media that i'm able to access and like media sort of mainstream media you know to use a, a term that's pretty loaded now has always been behind a paywall mm. it, it has always been behind a paywall aside from small local news perhaps on television or radio aside from the cdc um it's always been behind a paywall but the the nature of how we got information was so different so now why would i pay when i can get this free information they're both on youtube they're clearly this they're clearly of the same quality which we know to not be the case but we latch onto it anyway so somebody gives me a target i'm already mad i'm i'm gonna go for that target because it's easy and so uh, it becomes a really it's a it's a complicated question with complicated answers but that you can boil down a little bit and Kathleen, I, th I think I saw your hand, so you wanted to follow up on this too, but uh, I'm going to broaden it as well and ask you to respond that the, the picture we're painting here is that there's no one thing. It's not COVID. It's not anger at the government. It's not disenfranchisement of of white men. You know, how difficult it is to sort of like make sense of this? We want sort of the, these easy explanations. X happened because of Y. So when you're talking about making this an, a field of academic study, you, you know, how do you kind of rationalize that and, and, and simplify that in, in terms of trying to find a beginning point to this? Yeah, I think um, it's impossible to do it, um, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Um, but I think like um, Naomi Klein talked a lot about like interlocking crises. So, it, you know, like you said, it's not just one thing. It's like it's the climate crisis. It's COVID. It's, um, you know, the current economic situation we're in and it's all these things. And I think it's also like important to recognize that there's no way to generalize it, which makes it really difficult to have conversations about it. But it's also, there are still things that we can like find strong links and and, and stuff that kind of makes sense. Like you mentioned um, Tamara Leach, like just because she is a woman um, kind of in a leadership position of the convoy does not mean she's actively supporting male supremacy. Right. And like, and that's what I found quite a lot in my research was um, even when women were present as leaders, they were their labor was devalued as a biological function of of motherhood, of protecting their kids, of wanting to make their kids um, have a good life and have access to all these things. And so, although you can't generalize and you can't like say because of X, you know, Y happened and all this stuff, I think it's still important that we were still recognizing the structural and systemic things that are at play here. Right. What what you're kind of saying is that there, there's a there's a side there's there's a, a a female side to the the whole idea is these classic gender structures too. It's like uh, for for women perhaps and Tara Leach or, or other p women who are part of the Freedom Convoy feel this they're being pushed out because or, or they're they're being pushed out to take on roles they don't want to take. They want to be the provider and and uh, or or be the the nurturer and be the stay at home mom and they can't because of economic circumstance and these other like they feel like they're being pushed out into the workforce because that's what modern society wants them to do. Yeah, and even just even you know there are some women who are like no I'd rather just stay home with their with my kids, but there are also women who are happily in the workforce mm. but feel that uh they can no longer be represented as as being good mothers who can protect their children because they're not um actively moving against the government and so for lots of women like that's where this came from was they could be in the workforce like i talked to quite a few women who were like actually running for um political seats and stuff like that who were happy to be there but felt so because they are they they are and have to be good mothers. Right. And so I think like it, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive to be a good mother and be in the house or versus like be at, 
be in the workforce, but I think for most of them. And that's also the messaging that it comes from the men in their lives too, is you're going to be a good mother. You can work and you can do this stuff, but you still have to be a good mother. Right. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the, what I encountered mostly in my work and what I see now in my newer research happening as well. Amy, uh, some of the things we're getting at too, I, and this this occurred to me as listening to you all talk, but we're seeing. Th- I hate to bring it back to the United States, but you know one of the things we are seeing in the United States is this kind of attack on education as an institution. That there, there's this right wing talking point that you know schools are indoctrinating kids to be to think a certain way and to accept people that they don't want to accept. And I imagine that a lot of this makes sort of academic. Um, research into some of these things difficult because you are representing an institution much like the media that is greeted with inherent skepticism. Yeah. So I have two sort of responses to this question. Um, Right now in Alberta, we are having very vigorous and robust conversations about what academic freedom looks like. Mm. Uh, We recently at the University of Lethbridge hosted a controversial speaker. She was a residential school denier Mm -hmm. and also had a history of anti-Blackness and anti-transness. And she was invited by a faculty member to speak in the class. And there was a large protest Over 500 people showed up to her talk to drown her out. She was deemed unwelcome by the campus community. And it has now become the center of a storm where the Alberta government has basically said, we need to allow these sorts of speakers because of free speech and because of academic freedom. And so it's an interesting conversation about how do we have free speech and academic freedom in universities while also creating an environment in which everyone feels safe and welcome and um, comfortable, even even though just some discomfort is fine. Um, But the other side of things as a researcher who does work that the government doesn't always love is I very much maintain that academic freedom is is a necessary thing. Our current government probably doesn't love the sorts of things that I write. Right. And it was also difficult to get my interlocutors or sorry, my research participants to trust me enough to talk to me. They would go, well, no, you're just a university professor. You're clearly a feminist, clearly a cultural Marxist, clearly a communist. So why should I talk to you? And that does cause issues for those of us who study the far right when we want to talk to people in the far right and be taken seriously. I want to approach this idea of, you know, academic freedom and, and free speech and all of that. And I'm I'm going to throw it out to to everyone who wants a piece of this. But one of the things I think we have trouble with, I have trouble with that in the media trying to parse the things people say is, you know, there are people who do truly believe the things they say. If 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 we find abhorrent, especially if we find them abhorrent. But I think there are also people, and I think we could probably think of the names who we see in the media who are giving speeches and hosting podcasts and going to campus to campus and and who are essentially like, I want to make trouble. I want to, you know, I, I know these people are not liquid, but, you know, they will raise funds for, for certain groups, certain organizations, certain media outlets. They are I don't want to call them card artists, but it does feel like it's kind of a grift. So, I mean, how hard does that make your job um, trying to get to the bottom of what people really believe, especially like the high profile people, like the thought leaders of the movement? Like who's like, how do you sort out who's a true believer and who's in on the grift? Or can you? I suppose for me, it's less about whether or not the grifter believes in the grift and what happens to everybody who listens to the grift. Um, Like you said, I think we can all think of some people who come to mind when we talk about grifters. And so for me, it's it's more about the youth radicalization when they read their books or listen to their podcasts. It's the ripple effect that I care Mm -hmm. about. Um, Because I do think that when those ideas are taken up, they're often taken up in earnest that's a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's not, um, it's less about whether the grifter believes in what's going on, because it, at the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter if the messenger believes the message, it's if the audience believes the message. And I mean, and and, and we see it, right? We, we, grifter is the correct term for me. And often they're playing, they're playing out of a playbook. 
And, and you can see that playbook just replicating itself and they find little holes, they plug the little hole and they, and they carry on with the grift. And then the audience, the audience picks that up and carries it. There's a lot of reasons why the audience does that. Mm. Uh, It depends on the audience and the message and all of those kinds of things. Um, But yeah, it's about, you know, who, who believes them and how many and what those people are willing to do. Kathleen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what we saw for the convoy. They, there was, you know, like a set of um, political leaders and, you know, significant figures within the movement who were telling people who are living through, uh, you know, a pandemic, a climate crisis, you know, like it was kind of on the tail end of the, the big BLM surge as well. You have political leaders telling you that if you give this vaccine to your child, your child is going to die. And so the that is how the freedom movement picked up so fast, I think. You, you, know, you know, the freedom movement was around long before COVID, mm. and it was just kind of reinvigorated and restructured throughout COVID. But, but from what I heard from my participants was, of course, I'm going to worry about my child dying from this vaccine. Right. And you know, there's, you know, that fear comes from different directions. Like we can talk about systems of privilege and, and all those things. But, you know, if someone you trust is telling you that you're, you're in trouble, and you're in danger, of course, you're going to trust them. Um, and you're just not going to risk your child's life. Um, and so I think that that this, this idea of, of the way that that it ripples out, as Amy said, is, is, is really key, because that's what gave the movement so much so much momentum and and luke i think kathleen is hitting on something that that i kind of wanted to ask you specifically about which is in in your area of research which again has to do with sort of like politics and 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 men there is a crisis amongst white men and it is real it is happening we kind of see it happen but there are people and again we can think of the names who are exploiting that and are monetizing that and are never really getting at sustainable solutions that you know would help overcome this crisis yeah i mean grifts and grifters are inherently predatory Mm. right we choose a we choose a fear we choose a longing we choose a desire and and, and it is exploited. That's that is the the core of of the grift. And so, in the context of a crisis of masculinity, which is is true that it, that's a thing. But the crisis is really rooted in the idea that we have only ever had. I, I mean, in sort of post World War II North America in particular, we've only ever had sort of one way to be. A sort of real man and that's shifted right. over time but there's always, sort of always only one um and when that is no longer possible and we alluded to this earlier around sort of the reasons behind that not being possible anymore because we only have one frame of reference we're always sort of longing to and i'm using we here in sort of the royal we context of sort right. of white male um, white man's masculinity that is in crisis, right. um, quote unquote. The grift always centers around pieces of that traditional, that gender traditionalism. And so sometimes it's around what men need to be like and do. And sometimes it's around the kinds of power that men need to have. So it doesn't matter what right. you look like. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you can maintain power over other men or especially women. Um, or it's a combination of those things, but it always sort of calls back and we've sort of been, you know, alluding to specific people and we could pick any one of them now and isolate really quite quickly which piece of that sort of lost, quote unquote, masculine traditionalism that they are calling back to and the kinds of fears and anxieties that they're preying upon in order to leverage their grift. And at the end of the day... It's you said it. It's about making money. So again, any of those people, we can highlight how they're making money and what they're leveraging and all of those things. It's all it's all part of the grip. So is there is there a complex set of things that are happening around men and masculinity 
in many parts of the world, especially in North America, yeah, there are, um, is that you know, sort of easily solved by a regressive traditionalist masculinism? Absolutely not. Right. Because that it can't, it cannot be like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And Amy, I, I want to kind of bring in your kind of area of research too, looking at how, how youth are affected. Um, because I think we look a lot at young people today and we and we remark about how there, there's kind of more openness more acceptance more tolerance and i was shocked to learn um mostly because i don't have young people of a certain age in my life in terms of like preteens and teens that andrew tate to name names is kind of a big figure amongst a lot of young men and you would think those two things don't coexist you know the openness and tolerance and acceptance and the just horrid misogyny of somebody like Andrew Tate. Are we, I, I guess, how, how, how much are we understanding or misunderstanding young people and their vulnerability to some of these things? I think there's a few things there. Um, I actually think there's a lot more polarization in younger generations than we perhaps want to admit. So while there is quite a strong left-leaning contingency within say gen z or gen alpha uh, the same is true about the right and there's just simply less folks in the middle uh, i think the other thing that we need to consider is just how powerful social media is and while i don't love technological determinism i don't think social media is inherently <laughs> evil by any means but it does have an effect on young people especially when things go viral and we take something that has 1.4 million views as somehow credible or right. interesting and it just gets shared amongst groups and so i suppose it's not surprising to me that young people are affected by this in in quite terrifying ways. I think it also connects to these fears that young people have about their future, right? Young mm -hmm. people are inheriting a planet that is facing a climate crisis. They're inheriting an economic system that does not work. And so they fear for their futures. And one of the things that the far right is particularly good at is when you're afraid for your future, you look to the past. Because the past is an example of when things supposedly went well for people who looked like you. Right. So the the regressive sort of approaches of folks like Tate and others um, are appealing. They're easier than trying to reimagine what a different world would look like in the future. And, and talking about social media, too, there's kind of like a matter of scale um, where, you know, one, as, as you said, one point. 5 million hits seems like a lot as compared to like maybe the 500 to a thousand people who go to your high school. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you're a part of a community in that way too. You feel like there are other people who are having these issues. Luke wanted to add something too. Well, I, I just think we also really easily forget that social media, all of them are private companies they're it's private enterprise right, right? right it's not a it's not um sort of a street corner public discourse in the way that we sort of think it is on this utility that is the internet right we right. pay to go online and we use these private companies that content is curated for us through right. them and their job is to keep you on the platform because that's how they make money right. and so in the context of um you know, Amy was talking about Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and there's some good research coming out about how much, especially sort of personal and lifestyle news that's coming off of, especially TikTok. I mean, this is a private company, right? That it has deep ties to the government in the country in which they operate that really carefully curates the kind of content that people get. And so, and I think that that's easily forgotten um, in the context of, oh, this is where I get my news now, right? Right. And we've and we've seen a drastic twist in the kinds of things that we're getting on on Twitter, for example, with the Musk takeover of Twitter, and that should be a really big wake up call that our social media sites are contingent on the people that run them, and the people that run them want to make money; they run private companies. The irony, of course, is that you have Musk treating Twitter like it is a private company. and I mean, it is all private company and it's no longer publicly traded. But a lot of the people who are angry at previous decisions on Twitter um, consider it a public space like the public square and are angry about violations of free expression and free speech and all that.
it's yeah a little weird a little weird um <laughs> kathleen uh this is going to be kind of like a lightning round um so i'm i'm i have a couple of questions i want kind of each of you to weigh in on and, and number one for me is we're recording this on the day that the the report from the public inquiry into the use of the emergencies act dropped uh, we have a group in Ottawa, the Ottawa People's Commission, who are developing their own report about the impact of uh, the convoy on the people in Ottawa. Uh, I believe the city of Ottawa is doing an integrity commissioner's report as well. Whose responsibility is it? And it should should it be someone's responsibility to sort of like develop some sort of reporting about the impact on the people who led it and took part in it? And is that a piece we're missing out on? I think so. For sure. And that's actually what my new research is geared towards. Um, I'm looking at um, women's health within the movement um, here in Ottawa. And I think it's it's a really important piece of the puzzle in order to foster, you know, we were talking about that kind of like larger conversation that needs to happen between people. And I think also, like I didn't live in Ottawa during the convoy I moved here this summer. I have been here for six months now and I have listened to the stories of the people who held, who were living here who were not part of the convoy and I've also see um, convoy supporters and you know a lot of them you know of course the complaints are very different um, the the complaints of the people who were in Ottawa about being traumatized by the convoy versus you know the way that the the convoy sees itself as this great victory for freedom Mm -hmm. uh, but I think a lot of what's going on is articulations of being dissatisfied with the state of Canada right now from mm -hmm. both sides. And so I think having a conversation and developing some kind of reporting system or, or research projects that look at the way that, you know, white masculinity and the patriarchy and these kinds of alt-right movements hurt everybody even if you are in the alt-right movement you know mm -hmm. um and so i think it's a, it's a huge huge part of the puzzle and um i get to be one of the people that starts <laughs> looking at it um whether that's good or not um but i think it's it's a really important part that we just uh i think it's easy to avoid and it's easy to just like blame um, you know, this was you that you did this, but I think it's it's important work that needs to happen. Amy? Oh, I think Kathleen summed it up really nicely. Okay. Luke, anything to... Luke's given the thumbs up too. So let me... Uh, I'll, I'll start with Luke on this one then. Um, what are the responsibilities of politicians in this? Because you have... Again, we can name names... Uh, there are people who have sort of tagged themselves with the movement, if, even if they have not formally joined. There are people who will share the memes, who will say like, yes, this is a good question. You're right. And we should focus on this. And they may fundraise by by parroting the outrage. Um, but I mean, aside from those politicians, too, there's also like a lot of the anger at the convoy was focused at Justin Trudeau. And there were a lot of people who had criticized Justin Trudeau for not sitting down with the convoy. And we could, you know, talk all we want about how maybe that would have been more difficult than, than it sounds. But for any politician of any stripe and like going forward, what is the responsibility in terms of like managing all this anger and, and, and trying to, I guess, overcome it? Do they have responsibility even? Of, of course, of course they have responsibility. I mean, I, and, and I don't, I don't care what political stripe you fall under. If you want to be a politician, really in any country, but I mean, we're talking about Canada here, then your responsibility at the end of the day will be to everyone, mm -hmm. not just to the people that, that elect you in whatever context that that takes. Um, and so one of those responsibilities is to take seriously the implications of what is happening and what they are doing, because we have ample evidence from Canada, not just, I mean, it's really easy to point at the United States, but we have ample as evidence from Canada that the accelerationist and um, promotive behavior that happens by politicians in sort of more mainstream spaces leads to further physical violence mm -hmm. um, and the sort of online violence and other sort of social violence. Cause I would consider, you know, the honking of the convoy in Ottawa, that is 
perhaps physical violence because it literally hurts your ears, but there's some like real social violence going on there. This promotive behavior, whether you ascribe to it or not, has real implications for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think it's incumbent upon on politicians of all stripes to own that and and to acknowledge it and if you are somebody who positions themselves in that camp and they're a politician then you need to own that as well if you're gonna come onto the political scene and what you're advocating for is fascism then 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 own that or at least be be ready when people who observe your behavior and are conscious of what fascism means and what it has meant in the past say what you're doing is fascism and so I, I, you know, I don't mean to specifically point fingers in this context, but I think that the the sort of owning and acknowledgement of those things is incumbent on all politicians. Because if you're not willing to represent everybody, then what are you in it for? Power, right. money? Uh, that's that's not why we do politics, or it shouldn't be why we do politics anyway. Right, and it could be argued that a lot of the Freedom Convoy people would disagree that uh, that people in politics are in it for the people to begin with too. Amy, I feel like you're kind of at ground zero for maybe some of the the political responsibility angle of this year with uh, the, the premier of Alberta. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because I think in more right-wing spaces, taking accountability is actually working in their favor. Mm. Uh, that's what people actually want them to do and to say, yeah, actually, I do support this. And and it does get votes. Um, you know, our premier did intercede in the court proceedings. Um, <laughs> they have now cleared themselves of any wrongdoing in interceding mm-hmm. there. So I guess my question, particularly when it comes to Alberta, is what capacity do we actually have to hold people accountable and to hold our politicians accountable? Uh, It's feeling a little bit bleak here right Mm. now. And of course, we do have the trials going on in Lethbridge for the folks who were arrested at the Coots Sweet Grass blockade on very serious charges of Mm -hmm. conspiracy to commit murder um, and very serious weapons charges. And so it will be interesting to see how politicians respond to that when the trials really come full force in June. Mm-hmm. Kathleen, I imagine you have some thoughts about this. Yeah, I mean, coming from Alberta and uh, seeing everything happen from a distance is kind of um, crazy, to put it simply. <laughs> um and uh, I, but I also think that it's this kind of like weird thing to just say like Alberta and Saskatchewan are the backwards prairies, but I see a lot of the same issues happening here in Ontario. And um, I think that that is, speaks to, you know, how widespread and, and, you know, what Luke was saying, how important it is to take seriously what's going on. Um, and I think it can be very easy to write people off as like, Oh, that's just crazy. You know, that's a conspiracy theory. But I I think it's part of what I want to do with my work is to show people like, it it doesn't matter if it sounds crazy to them, it's real. And that, that, that sprouts all of this activity and and all of this thing. And, and, And the same thing is for politicians, you know, I don't know if the Premier of Alberta believes half the things that she says, but she says them. And that makes them real. And so it's right. it's important, like Luke said, to take it all extremely seriously from both, I think, a political end and, and, a, and a public engagement end as well. So maybe to wrap up, I'm not going to ask anyone to make predictions, but, you know, in terms of like your concerns about what happens next, I mean, you know, the, the Freedom Convoy reunion kind of fizzled, you know, some people came, but it wasn't a, a big to do. Um we're certainly seeing, you know, a lot of the people espousing those beliefs running in local elections. I saw it in my own backyard here. So, Amy, you know, to kick us off, uh, what what is what is something you're keeping your eye on going forward? What are you kind of worried about? So, I think more at a provincial level uh, than a federal one here. But my concern, and Luke mentioned this at the beginning, is the Overton window. To what Mm. extent are we just going to continue to push rhetoric further to the right? And then to also go back to my previous conversation about polarization, 
how much further do those of us on the left get pushed further to the left and and how much of a of a polarization do we see it and an incapacity to speak across those two uh, parts of the political spectrum um because my big concern is that we will have a society that cannot speak to one another not that we need to take fascism and say yeah we should definitely debate with fascists but folks who are on the right but are not perhaps far right you still have to have a conversation with them if you want to have a functioning democracy and so i just uh that's my biggest fear is, is increased polarization and increased unwillingness to speak to one another kathleen yeah, I think, gosh, there's there's so much to worry about. Um, <laughs> I I mean, as I'm kind of continuing my research, like uh, for the year reunion of the convoy, I was actually um, on the hill um, doing a little bit of, of field work there. And, you know, there wasn't, I had one gentleman tell me that there was going to be 10,000 people there that weekend, and there wasn't. Um, but mm-hmm. there was still a large group of people. And actually, tomorrow, I got invited um, by some participants to go back downtown because they're having another rally. And so I think we're going to see this this big resurgence with the weather getting nicer, the sun coming out, you know, people are going to be more inclined to take protests back out into the public. And I think my fear is fall along with Amy's and that it's just it it feels like we're not making any progress and it feels like we're just being pulled further and further apart and also you know as as a young woman it's I selfishly am just terrified for my future I I I don't know you know what to do what my life's gonna look like I I don't feel like I have a home uh anywhere because you know what things just seem to be dissolving and so it's uh it's definitely scary but i i also am a firm believer in the opposite of hopeless not hopelessness it's complacency so as long as we're not just gonna stick around and sit and do nothing it's okay to to have those fears and to be a little hopeless sometimes luke i was gonna make a crack about giving the last word to a poor put upon white man but i feel that might be in bad taste now but (laughs) you you still get the last word all right well all right um I think so. I one thing I'll say is when you spend your life doing the kinds of research that the three of us do, um, it's really easy to feel really bleak a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but there are things that sort of that that buoy me. So I mean, I, I actually ran in in the last um, municipal election uh, for city council in Guelph, where I live. That's and- where I know you from. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and the thing that buoys me about that is that I mean we had some folks who had run previously on the sort of far and extreme right in other levels of government unsuccessfully who ran for for example school board school board mm-hmm. school boards in Guelph who were mm-hmm. not elected who mm-hmm. you know citizens sort of identified them and put the word out and said, like, if you vote for this person, because I mean, school board elections are the ones we pay the least attention to, right? And they sort of said, well, if you vote for this person, this is who you're voting for. And those people didn't get elected in this space. And I think that that's significant, because I think we undersell the importance of municipal governance um, in sort of real action in our communities, uh, especially around the kinds of things that we're talking about. And we're seeing that stuff play out in real time over the last 20 years, really, but really right now in the United States. And so that's something to sort of take seriously. I think that um, I have, I have great concern with our, uh, with those in power, and this is not exclusive to those that I might place on the right, but those in power who are not willing to make changes to those power structures to best represent the people Mm. that they are sworn to represent Mm -hmm. and so we know that there are um modifications to our political system that we can make that will better represent canadians and i don't just mean canadians on the left i mean canadians across the entire political spectrum we know that we can make changes to our political structures that will better represent canadians across the board and those who hold power of course, always fear losing power. And so we are unwilling to make those changes. And in some places like Ontario and and Alberta are actively preventing 
change. Right. Even if municipalities want to make them. I mean, that happened in Ontario where municipalities were like, no, we we want these changes. We're going to enact them in our municipal governance. And the province said, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really deeply problematic because that signals to me that the purpose of that political power and that political system is to maintain itself, not represent those people that they are sworn to represent. And I think that that's really problematic. And historically, we see more of that, not exclusively, but we see more of that as we move farther to the right on the political spectrum. And and that's really problematic. It's one of the things that we are sort of consciously aware of um, in, in ciphers in our organization, but sort of as individuals as well. Well, Luke has walked right up to the line of a new area of inquiry, which seems like a good place to leave things. But uh, Kathleen Ma, Amy Mack, and Luke Cousineau, uh, I thank you so much for all your hard work and uh, for, for sharing some of your insights with us today. Thank you so much. And once again, that was Luke Cousineau, Amy Mack, and Kathleen Ma. You can learn more about the Canadian Institute for Far-Right Studies at their website, which is cifrs.org. You can also follow them on Twitter at c-i-f-r-s-o-r-g that is c-i-f-r-s-o-r-g and you can read the report from the public inquiry into the 2022 public order emergency and that is at their website publicorderemergencycommission.ca we will of course be discussing that and its findings on this week's edition of open sources guelph on cfru tune in at thursday at 5 p.m and that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you would like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the show for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.